Welcome to the Flannery Podcast, episode 32. The issue, virus punctures Trump's arrogance, sinks his presidential campaign. Stay tuned. We're rounding the corner on the pandemic. That's what Trump repeated until several days ago. Then he got the virus. He had it coming. He didn't try to avoid it. He flaunted his reckless disregard of Mother Nature and infectious disease experts who repeatedly warned and criticized him for not taking precautions, if not for himself, then for those who looked to him for guidance how to cope with this pandemic. He had to be coerced to wear a mask, ever, made fun of those who did, repeatedly, told a reporter not to be so PC as to wear a mask. A voter in Arizona spoke for a lot of people when he got the virus. Oh, 100%. Not only did he take this risk, he encouraged his constituents to take the same risks, Um, whether it be through his uh, rallies uh, or just telling them alternative ways that were unproven to cure the virus. It's a fair reaction. Trump had it coming. Trump said we were turning the corner. He said this even as he had the virus making him tired and creeping into his lungs. Infectious disease experts are all warning us that we are in the middle of the pandemic. It's grown cooler now, and the flu joins its hurtful forces with the ever-present virus. We have 40,000 COVID-19 cases every day, 700 to 1,000 deaths every day, about 7.4 million infections, almost 210,000 deaths. Many states are experiencing increases in infections. The number of new daily infections rose in 25 states, spanning every region of the country. New Mexico recorded the biggest spike at over 50%. What role did Trump play in the virus? He knew It was a vicious disease. He told post-award-winning journalist Bob Woodward that it was, that he knew that, especially because it was airborne. And then he went out and lied to the nation that it was a nothing burger, told all of us, don't worry, it's a hoax, go back to work. He scoffed at any of the instructions his own COVID-19 team recommended. He had it coming. We had plenty of data points that Trump is a ruthless brute who cares not at all for anyone else. Everyone and everything is a means to an end, elements of Trump's personal and confidential agenda, the rest be damned. We know the character of the man, amoral, a liar, lawless, heartless, a bully, a man without allegiance to anyone or anything that doesn't serve his purposes. Consider for a moment, we all know Batman's superpower is that he is rich. Well, what is Trump's superpower? It is that he lies. We had what some called a presidential debate on September the 29th, just days ago. But it seems so long ago now. 
And Biden took it to Trump that he did nothing to protect us from the virus. You folks at home, how many of you got up this morning and had an empty chair at the kitchen table because someone died of COVID? How many of you were in a situation where you lost your mom or dad and you couldn't even speak to them? You had a nurse holding a phone up so you could, in fact, say goodbye. You would have lost far how many people? To be this is the same man It's all set up. By Easter, this would be gone away. By the warm weather, it would be gone. Miraculous. Like a miracle. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm and that would take care of it. This is the that same was man. Sarcastic that was sarcastic. You know that. I, I 40,000 people a day are contracting COVID. In addition to that, about between 750 and 1,000 people today are dying. When he was presented with that number, he said, it is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. He knew all the way back in February how serious this crisis was. He knew it was a deadly disease. What did he do? He's on tape is acknowledging he knew it. He said he didn't tell us or give people a warning of it because he didn't want to panic the American people. You don't panic. He panicked. Wait a minute. You get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me. This, hey, hey, this let me just... Only days before that, on Saturday, September 26th, Trump had ignored the rules about masks and distancing and the shredders who infected White House staffers, senators, Melania, and Trump himself. At least that's the suspicion. This was when Trump announced the Supreme Court pick, Judge Barrett, the religious cultists favored by the fervilists and wacko fundamentalists who care about the zygote, the fertilized egg that travels down the fallopian tubes and not a bit at all for any of our out-of-utera humans, apparently. In the photographs of this mingling, you see Senator Lee speaking with Judge Barrett, and at some point it is highly suspected at this meeting Senator Lee, who is one of the senators slated to consider Judge Barrett's Supreme Court nomination well, he got the virus, and he is presently quarantined. We are suspicious that Trump knew before the debate that he was at risk. But the liar king ain't talking. I only wish the self-described gonzo journalist Hunter Thompson were alive today. Hunter, if you didn't know him, would explain to us that Trump acted as he did at the debate because of Ibogaine or some such thing. Ibogaine was the drug that he said Senator Muskie had used. So Thompson claimed caused Muskie to cry in the snow when his wife was attacked by a New Hampshire paper. The drug hunter claimed Muskie was being treated with was a little-known uh, root called Tabernanth Obaga, or Ibogaine. Hunter wrote for the Rolling Stone, at a dose of 300 milligrams given orally, the subject experiences visions, changes of perception of the environment, and delusions or alterations of thinking. Ibogaine produces a state of drowsiness in which the subject does not wish to move, open his eyes, or be aware of his environment. The root, which is meant to be consumed by hunters, allowing them to remain completely still for days on end, was the only way to explain Muskie's stupor and his terrible performance on the trail. Sounds crazy, it was. The campaign trail was so boring that hunters circulated the Ibogaine story as a rumor. Remember, he was writing for the Rolling Stone, and he was often stoned himself. Now, George McCovern became the nominee of the party, not Muskie, and Frank Mankiewicz, who ran George McGovern's presidential campaign in 1972, spoke about Hunter's classic on that campaign, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, and how he knew when Hunter was coming to D.C., because Hunter would forward his mail to Frank's home. 
quite a presumption, don't you think? But listen to what Frank had to say. Every once in a while, Hunter, come, Hunter, I guess he hasn't for a while, but he used to come to Washington fairly regularly and stay with us. Right. Right. I, see, I used to know when Hunter was due to come to Washington because I would start to get his mail. Uh, <laughs> he would have it forwarded, which was a sure sign that soon he would be on our doorstep. Um, but he hasn't done it lately. I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, I, I don't know what the Senator McGovern said about uh, Hunter's book, Fear and Loathing on the camp tra Campaign Trail, but I have been quoted many times, and I'll say it again. It was the most accurate and least factual account of that campaign. <laughs> if Hunter were with us today, he'd deal with Trump by just lying right back, just like he did when he had his Ibogaine story. Hunter made politics real, but also fun. And there was a point of view in his uh, uh, antics, if you will. He was clear, however, who the enemy was in 1972. It was Nixon, and he called him out as the enemy. That it was by Nixon's pure evil. <laughs> Which I, I still miss. <laughs> yeah, he was a giant. And it was Humphrey's treachery that defined him. Uh, Christ, with, with Nixon, the treachery didn't work, did it? It was, a, it was like an ingrained uh, sort of uh, the price of doing business with Nixon was to assume he was treacherous and real treacherous, bad, evil treacherous. If he was here today, the enemy, I suspect, would be Trump. Anyone who lived through those times can envision Hunter laughing it off in a drug-induced haze, pounding on an old manual typewriter, fighting a deadline he'd be hard-pressed to make. Incidentally, when his book came out, Fear and Loathing on the, on the Campaign Trail, he had a picture of himself and the candidate George McGovern on the plane talking to each other. McGovern was amused by the caption that Hunter added. Remember that uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign trial was the uh, book jacket in which it showed uh, Hunter and I sitting on an airplane and the inscription under the picture is uh, Senator George McGovern is showing is showing here uh, imploring Dr. Hunter Thompson to be his vice presidential <laughs> uh, I, uh, I don't know whether that sold books or not but uh, uh, I must say, I run into that book even yet all over this country. It's uh, become a kind of a folk piece of the 72 campaign. I hope uh, Hunter has gotten as rich from it as it appears to me, traveling around the country, running into it every McGovern was a good man. Hyden is a good man. That's why a guy like the gonzo journalist would like either one. Hunter, on the other hand, would find Tramp to be treacherous and evil, not boring at all, and more like Nixon than anybody else between that presidency and the current one. If Hunter were covering the campaign, he'd be making some strong points with some political courage. He might say Trump on debate night, you know, the presidential debate, was seized with his Adderall addiction, and that explains his menacing faces, how he leaned in Joe's direction, his large gestures, and his ceaseless interruptions of Biden, all efforts to stop him notwithstanding. Adderall increases dopamine, 
and norepinephrine levels in the central nervous system. That gets the brain on high alert, paying close attention and increasing the speed at which the person reacts to outside stimuli, like interruptions. Hunter would say, you saw that crazy orange beast at that debate. You know he was doing something strange. You know what he was on. He was on Adderall. Dopamine, the body's feel-good chemical, Hunter would say, but at naturally high levels to stimulate being alert, really alert. That's what Hunter might say explain Trump's conduct. Of course, I have no evidence of it. We may get that someday, but we don't have any evidence now. And I'm not saying that Trump snorts and flares because he's an Adderall addict, but I've heard some say he does. It's the kind of thing Trump would say. I heard somebody say that he does. Okay, okay, our strength is in the, our strength is in the truth, not the lies. But it's also not simply passing on the lies and the converse side that Trump and his crime family tells every day, multiple times a day. And Hunter was more of a journalist than some on-air and print folk these days who take what this evil stable genius says and just put it out there, just publish it. They give him shade. We have doctors telling us about the status of Trump's infection. If a person needs oxygen, it's an indication the virus is invading the lungs. Imaging can tell us if the virus is having any effect on the lungs. If a person needs oxygen, then more drastic steps are taken. A steroid treatment is one of those procedures. There are more, and we've been told about uh, one or more that he's, he's participating in. It appears that all these things have happened to Trump, and we're fed this swill about how well he's doing when it's not clear that's true at all. In fact, we don't know what the truth is. The public can't get a straight answer on the president's true profile as sick, recovering, or, or well, although I doubt that he's well. At a press briefing today at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, Trump's doctor said that in not initially disclosing that Trump had been on oxygen, the spokesman's doctor was, get this, trying to reflect the upbeat attitude that the team, the president, over his course of illness has had. In other words, he lied. He understood his mission to broadcast Pollyannish nonsense to us rather than the truth. Do no harm. That's one of the oaths that a doctor takes. It's not limited to medical practice. It's also good practice when asked a question to tell the truth or keep your mouth shut and not mislead anyone. Now, some have cited HIPAA as a reason the doctor may have done that. You know, confidentiality, you can't talk about certain things you learn as a doctor. But HIPAA doesn't authorize a doctor to make material omissions and lie thereby or to lie flat out. Also, this is not your ordinary patient. This is a special patient. You would think Trump would like that part of it. Like it or not, he's the president of the United States. Any confidentiality he may enjoy should be waived so the nation may know truly how he's doing. It's important. By all appearances, Trump must have given some sort of waiver or the doctors wouldn't have been telling us anything. But they told us lies instead. If the doctors can't tell us the truth, they should remain silent. They shouldn't be hectored by Trump and his crime family into telling us another Trump lie or a series of them. Oh, what a web we weave when first we seek to deceive. This is not a time nor an event that can be kept secret. But we know the man. If we ever doubted who he is, we have so many data points. Despite the fact that Trump is infected, on Sunday he left the hospital to greet fans. Now this is a man that doesn't think about anybody else. What about the driver? What about those who brought him to the car? What about those he may have seen on the way? 
Who else did he put at risk by his infected drive-by? Trump is the original man-child. He learns nothing. He has no impulse control. He is a danger to himself, worse to others as well. I think it would be worthwhile to do a short refresher on who we know Trump to be. Stay tuned. Trump's federal tax returns are the subject of a subpoena from the New York DA for paying off his tricks to keep it from the voters, uh, but also for manipulating his taxes. The New York Times released a mother load of information showing what kind of tax crook Trump is, paying only $750 in taxes the year he ran for office and for his first year in office. Stunning New York Times report on President Trump's tax returns shows he paid just $750 in federal income tax in 2016 and 2017, and none at all for 10 of the previous 15 years before that. It's totally fake news. Actually, I paid tax, but and you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It, it's underwater, and they've been underwater for a long time. That $750 has bought him a lot of uh, health coverage in the last few days. There is more than $70 million offshore income to Trump while Trump has been president. So much for that constitutional prohibition against receiving emoluments. And the beat goes on. Eric Trump is supposed to testify by October the 7th about what the family business is doing to inflate expenses and losses to avoid taxes. The New York Attorney General filed a new lawsuit against the Trump Organization and Eric Trump. The lawsuit is an attempt to force the president's company to turn over its financial records and compel Eric Trump to testify under oath. Letitia James is investigating if the Trump Organization lied about its finances to secure lower rates on loans and insurance. James says she began the investigation after hearing the congressional testimony of Michael Cohen. In a line of questioning, the the president's former lawyer stated the devaluation of the company and other business practices should be scrutinized. Trump is a taker of money and men's souls for his selfish ends. Trump has usurped the Congress and the judiciary. Trump has nominated a woman who has agreed to do what Trump wants her to do on the Supreme Court. Some Republicans may take faux encouragement when she says, and says it under oath, that she will look at court precedent and will vigorously oppose the president if he oversteps his power, even as he abuses his power to nominate a protector on the Supreme Court to be used should he challenge the election with her on the court. When Judge Barrett is prepared to, what Judge Barrett is prepared to do is a ritualistic political lie, saying what some need to hear, that has no more substance than the air she'll disturb when she testifies. This is part and parcel of Majority Leader Moscow Mitch McConnell's system of packing the court with ideologues who will do the party's bidding rather than be fair judges who will stand the test of time. You know, like when it required 60 votes to choose a judge, forcing the partisans to actually agree upon a person who would be worthy of being a Supreme Court justice. Trump enjoyed the interference by the Russians in the last election in 2016, and he's doing it again in 2020 and suppressing anybody who would say otherwise in intelligence or in his cabinet or any place else. 
Trump hopes that his latest nomination to the court will protect him in the Supreme Court when he challenges the outcome. Trump hopes that the nomination to the court will destroy the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and this even as he enjoys such public health care at the taxpayer's expense. Not bad uh, coverage for $750. Well, that's a brief but fair summary of the devil known to us as Trump. Stay tuned. The people are not fooled by Trump, even if the pundits and some reporting suggest otherwise. Three quarters of our nation's citizens, when polled, said Trump didn't take the virus seriously. Two thirds believe Trump could have avoided his infection. In no small part because of Trump, I'm sure, 81% are very or somewhat concerned about getting the virus themselves. Based on the so-called presidential debate, there is a wider spread of the voters in the national election. 30 days hence, but proceeding as we speak between Trump and Biden. This Sunday, in a brand new poll, Biden has a 14-point lead nationally. In addition, Biden has older voters supporting his candidacy at the rate of 62% to 35% for Trump. Biden has suburban women at the rate of 58% to 33% for Trump. This kind of pull by the top of the ticket can help the Senate flip and become Democratic. The House may remain under the control of the Dems. Finally, if we can force a fair election, Biden will be elected on November the 3rd. If we win the White House, we'll only need three flips in the Senate from red to blue for Vice President Harris to sit in the chair in the Senate and break any tie votes. Let's now talk a bit about why does anyone agree to follow the Supreme Court's decision and how that's at risk with this president and his nominee. Stay tuned. At the heart of Trump's betrayal of the nation is his failure to uphold the law and follow the Constitution. Trump conducts himself like a low-level mobster, except for the fact that he sits in the Oval Office, and has enormous power by that fact that eclipses whatever a mobster would have. In the last uh, podcast, we discussed how he abused his power in the nomination of Judge Barrett. I don't intend to repeat what we said about that, but consider the question, what is it the Supreme Court does, and how does it demand respect to implement its decisions? This is an important question, because at the heart of Trump's betrayal of his oath and his disregard of the law and Constitution is that he prefers prefers a chaos that allows him by impulse and fiat to do whatever he wants. First, there is what the court does. It is the ultimate arbiter of what the Constitution means. Second, it also answers the question how America is governed. But how does the nation respect the court's power to make decisions when the courts have neither sword nor purse to enforce their decisions? It's something that Trump couldn't possibly understand. It's about trust and respect in the law because of how the courts conduct themselves. We'll discuss that in a moment. As a baseline, I ask you to keep in mind that Trump's indifference and ignorance put our courts at risk for reasons going beyond this flawed judicial nomination of Judge Barrett now pending. Back to basics. The three departments, judicial, executive, and legislative, were intended to bring about a form of democracy that would guarantee the nation's original promise of democracy and liberty. The thing you hear a lot from those who do not understand the meaning of a constitutional right is why not just ask the legislature to pass a law? Can you see why that's the wrong question? 
Scalia, who's the godfather of originalism, what the founders thought to make law, and textualism, what the words say, when confronted with a grievous wrong that he said is not contained within the literal text of the Constitution, he'd say, let's wait until the legislature passes it into law. A legislature. What is the difference about a legislature that doesn't assure an individual of having his or her rights respected? The majority will often, not always, push aside the rights of a minority or of a single person. A legislature is a representative body made up of the mass or majority of the people. This is no place to go to get the rights of the individual protected, particularly if those rights are not celebrated universally. In the Anti-Federalist Papers, Patrick Henry and others wanted individual rights guaranteed against what the masses or a majority might prefer or even seek to legislate. Madison penned the rights that became the earliest amendments to the Constitution we know as the Bill of Rights. The Constitution, unlike the federal legislature, the Congress, or any state legislature, represents we, the people, and they, we, the people, have no, legislat no legislative intermediaries between the Constitution and those rights by the express language of the Constitution. The courts provide for an individual popular defendant, unpopular defendant to assert his rights against the majority's will. Democratic governments require stability, and volatility swinging one way than another is not stability. That's why the courts are so important, among other reasons. It follows a court must be able to review a statute representing the view of the majority that has an unintended or intended effect that compromises the rights of an individual. One contentious example is Griswold against Connecticut, where Connecticut made it a crime for a married couple to use the pill as a contraceptive. Justice Douglas wrote that persons had a right to be let alone in the marriage, to make such decisions within the penumbra of several amendments in the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Presumably, Judge Barrett, Barrett does not embrace this decision, not because of the law, but because of her faith. So much for precedence. It'll be interesting to see if anybody asks these focused questions rather than just give speeches and wander on. These issues are often controversial. For example, consider the debate long ago of prayer in school. Can't have it. Some people insist on it. Some people today, including, I'll bet you, Judge Barrett. Why are the courts on the line for these decisions? Justice Breyer has written a wonderful short book, Making Our Democracy Work. And he said the answer is found in the need to ensure a workable democratic system. Among his examples, he noted that, quote, equal protection of the laws helps ensure the government will not improperly weight one citizen's voice against another. Now, this structure came with the rationale I'm describing as it was contemplated by the participants in the Constitutional Convention. It didn't just spring up. It was there. It was the discussion that resulted in the document we call our Constitution. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts stated, quote, the judiciary possesses a power of deciding on a law's constitutionality. 
Hamilton, who was a prime mover in this convention, along with Madison and others, weighed in on this question, stating, where the will of the legislature declared in its statutes stands in opposition to that of the people, Constitution, declared in its statutes, stands in opposition to that of the people declared in the Constitution. The judges, judges ought to regulate their decisions by the fundamental laws rather than those by which are not fundamental. In other words, the fundamental laws are found in the Constitution and the statutes are not the source of fundamental law. All, all young law students study, and some might claim suffer, the pivotal decision of John Marshall's Marbury against Madison. But that's where it started, the definition of how the Supreme Court asserts itself to decide whether or not a law is constitutional or not. In all respects, the Federalist Mar Marbury complained that his midnight commission by outgoing President Adams was withheld by Madison, which was Jefferson's Secretary of State, and Jefferson was the incoming president. Marbury filed a writ of mandamus with the Supreme Court, claiming the appointment was ministerial, meaning there was nothing that involved any discretion to do the deed that he asked them to do, to give him his commission to be a judge. Justice Marshall, after granting many of Marbury's points as a matter of law, stopped short of making a decision in favor of Marbury. Now, in these early days, Marshall wasn't sure he could enforce a decision to grant the commission. There were great forces. Uh, Jefferson was an antagonistic. And then there were the Federalists upset that the commission go forward. And there were the Jeffersonians who thought otherwise. But Marshall found the statute before him conflicted with the Constitution's grant of jurisdictional competence to the court. So he decided that since that statute was not constitutional, he couldn't act because he didn't have the jurisdictional authority to do so. Not all court decisions since have found their rulings enforceable, but this one was in part because it didn't require Jefferson to do anything. So he wasn't compelled to do anything. He didn't have to visibly reflect upon the law and act upon it. Uh, and it established for all time from that case to this that the Supreme Court has this overview uh, now, like I said, not all court decisions since have found their rulings enforceable. One that's generally known is Brown against the Board of Education overruling state laws enforcing racial segregation. It took years before that ruling was accepted and followed. The history is a long one. Books and treatises have been written about it. There were cases discussing it, but it was hard to enforce. Respect for the decisions of the court is therefore a critical element of the stability of our government. Appointing a judge, let's say Barrett, narrowly favored in a partisan fight during an ongoing election when the incumbent's hold on his office grows more tentative every, tentative every day is exactly the kind of action that is not only an abuse of power, as we discussed earlier in our prior podcast, but it puts the regularity and integrity of the court at issue to render decisions that will be respected and followed. It also may be worth a few minutes now to consider what <clears throat> may the Senate look like only weeks from now after the November elections. Stay tuned. All of this time we've been discussing uh, what may affect the Senate races this year. We anticipate a flip in the West Wing. For similar reasons, the Senate may flip, pulled along by the strong pair of powerhouses at the top of the ballot, 
on the Democratic side, Biden and Harris. Let's look at those seats where the change may come. <clears throat> and if you're thinking of making contributions, write these down and think about it, although you can find it in various places. In Colorado, we have Republican Senator Cory Gardner, who is in danger. Many thought that he would step aside on the Barrett decision and join others to say that he was upset with the approach. The state voted for Clinton in 2016 by about five points. Um, Cory Gardner didn't do that. We don't know what the president said to him. We don't know what he genuinely thought. The Democratic challenger, Governor John Hickenlooper, has put the pressure on Gardner for supporting the confirmation of Judge Barrett. There's a very good chance the Democrat wins this election. In Arizona, Republican Senator Martha McSally is in a difficult race with former astronaut Mark Kelly, Gabrielle Gifford's husband. In the polls, Mark is favored. That would be another important pickup. Trump has narrowed the margin with Biden, at least before the presidential debate that he had and before Trump got the virus, and Trump may fade, giving the edge an even better edge to Mark. In North Carolina, first-termer Republican Senator Tom Tillis is in a close race with Democratic Cal Cunningham. That's a knife edge, and it's very hard to predict. Remember, Trump in North Carolina suggested voters should vote twice in the state, testing their ability to avoid prosecution as such conduct is lawless. But still, it'll be a close race. In Maine, we have uh, quite a race going on. Republican Senator Susan Collins is down in the polls behind the Democrat uh, Sarah Gideon. Collins voted for the 2017 GOP tax plan, uh, got contributions from farmer. Her support was for Kavanaugh to join the Supreme Court. And notwithstanding her imminent vote against Judge Barrett, uh, her chances of winning are low right now. Uh, people don't trust her after Kavanaugh, no matter what she says about Barrett, it, it appears. She's behind in the polls, and Biden was up uh, almost two to one over Trump in Maine. So that, that looks like a strong pickup. In Iowa, Republican Senator Joni Ernst is having trouble when Republicans are endorsing Democratic businesswoman and his opponent, Teresa Greenfield. There's a, a really dirty ad out that a vote for Greenfield means, get this, the mob wins. This is a, a demeanor offense, meaning, uh, uh, you know, the, the voters care about that this year, civility and demeanor, and I, I don't think that kind of language works, and that's why it's in the media that people are talking about it. Let's turn to Montana. Republican Senator Steve Daines is in a tough race with former Democratic Governor Steve Bullock, who won his prior office as governor <clears throat> the year that Trump won the state by 20 points. So he's a phenomenon. The Green Party candidate that might have uh, diluted some of the, the, the fight was taken off the ballot, improving Bullock's chances. In Georgia, we have Republican Senator David Perdue. He's up five points against the Democratic candidate John Ossoff. So where's the beef? Changes in the Atlanta suburbs are making the Peach State competitive. So it's not lost, but it is combative. There are a few, mile, there are a few miles to go there yet. If uh, the top of our ticket, Biden, continues to gain ground, that will obviously help in Georgia. In South Carolina, now this is a butte. The incumbent is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, hated by many and all. Lindsey's about to convene the confirmation hearings on Judge Barrett, which probably will not help him. His opponent is Jamie Harrison, who is tied for the seat in the polls. 
this would be a sweet pickup. Lindsay would be uh, a stellar win. These senators all may suffer because they joined themselves at the hip long enough to go down this election season with Trump. But they had it coming. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Thanks for joining our podcast. Subscribe if you haven't. Talk with you next Sunday. In the meantime, take care. Vote if you haven't. Give if you can. All the best. Bye-bye.